Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about workforce education with two MIT faculty, Bill Bonvillian and Sanjay Sarma. I am your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the CEO and founder of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world. And I am also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. Technology advances are putting quality jobs out of reach for workers who lack the proper skills and training. We need a roadmap for new workforce education systems to rebuild America's working class, tackling inequity by equipping our workers for 21st century jobs. We need to train more workers more quickly using innovative methods. Bill and Sanjay join me today to share various ideas on new roles of community colleges, employers, governments, and universities that they need to take in workforce education, as well as new education technologies that can be adopted to deliver this kind of training. So Bill and Sanjay, I am delighted to have you joining us. Bill, why don't you start by giving our listeners a little bit of your background? Sure. Thanks, Maureen. I'm a lecturer at MIT in its program on science, technology, and society. And I've been teaching technology policy, innovation policy there for years. And I'm senior director for special projects, working with Sanjay at MIT's Office for Open Learning, Digital Education. I'm the author of five books, including this new book with Sanjay, Workforce Education, A New Roadmap, as you just mentioned. And Sanjay, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Maureen. Uh, My name is Sanjay Sarma, as you said. I'm a professor at MIT. I'm vice president for open learning. I head up the Office of Open Learning, which is a large office that does a lot of work in open education resources, open courseware, MITx. I sit on the board of edX. I'm also a technologist. I work on manufacturing, Internet of Things, sensors, and uh, I'm the author of several books on education, including the book we're talking about today on workforce education. In the intro, we talked a little bit about how important this is. I'm sure you have a lot of statistics about why this is so important and why you chose to, of all the books you could write, why you chose to write this one right now. Maureen, I can start off on, on this question. You know, we're seeing a deep problem in the U.S. with growing economic inequality, not the historic kind of economic convergence that we've had in the United States. It's been a festering problem now for about 15 years. There's a a colleague of ours at MIT, an economist named David Otter, and he portrays this situation as kind of a barbell. So what's going on in the US is that we've got this barbell on on one bell is the upper middle class, and that's thriving and that's doing better than ever. And then the bar, That's the middle class, historically the great strength of the country. We've been thinning that out. And then there's another bell on the other end, which is kind of a growing lower end services sector. And this is a dilemma for the U.S. that's historically relied on a strong middle class. If we're thinning it out, that has all kinds of implications for our politics, for our societal relations, for our attitudes towards each other. And at the core issue here is the ability to educate our workforce to get to a growing number of jobs in kind of higher skill areas. IT in particular, we're all familiar with, but there are new technologies that are entering the workplace in many different fields, including IT. And we're not 
filling the job opportunities that are available. So we've got an opportunity to really tackle this barbell problem, but we don't have the workforce education system in place to get us there. So that's, that's what drove us to do this book. They're quality jobs, and by that I mean you know full-time, well-paying jobs that offer careers with continuing advance opportunities that can lead to strong societal well-being, real entry into the middle class. But we aren't really educating adequately to create those kinds of opportunities. I think that's very well said, Bill. I think that the whole problem we have today is that the half-life of technology is shortening. Uh, and so you need to, you're sort of on a treadmill going backwards. And if you're running on the treadmill, you're going to fall off the other end. A certain segment of society just isn't on that treadmill. We need to get them on. And we're seeing this, and we'll talk more about this in the conversation, but World Economic Forum and McKinsey and Corn Ferry and other research data organizations are saying this problem is accelerating at a rate higher than we expected pre-COVID. Let me say a word about that, Maureen. There's not an emergency here, right? So in other words, yes, technologies are entering the workforce and they're entering an increasing scale, but it is a graduate, gradual process. So it's not as if the robots are going to take our jobs tomorrow, right? Instead, we're finding that you know, yes, robots will eliminate some jobs, but they will also create a lot of jobs where you have to manage robots and the rest of the job, and then they'll create some jobs just creating the robots. So it's a more complex story here than just the robots eating up work. There's going to be a lot of work here. It's just going to be somewhat different kinds of work that are kind of gradually entering into the workplace. Which is what leads us perfectly into the education piece. Right that the story isn't all the jobs are going away, it's that they're different. So let's jump into the first question then. The workforce problems you address in workforce education are twofold. It's not just how to prepare workers for jobs in the new labor market, but an emphasis on preparing them for quality jobs. So how is this specification different and how do we define quality jobs for the future workforce? Quality jobs are, are going to be the jobs that are well-paying, that are full-time. There was too many people in the U.S. are now kind of stacking different services jobs together to try and create one decent job. They're often not year-round. We want full-time, well-paying job opportunities that offer true careers with opportunities that if you increase your skills, you, you can reach advancements. And there are jobs and growing numbers of jobs that require somewhat higher skills that are evolving out there that can be filled. That's what we want to move for. And we've got a workforce education system that just isn't quite getting us there. Sanjay? You know, we talk about technologies becoming obsolete. We've got to start thinking about people's skills becoming obsolete and progression within a company and this in this economy a change in demographics, job types, the gig economy, et cetera. And also, it all plays into this. Great. So then let's move into when discussing the cost benefit of education, the issue of education divide invariably comes up. Has America's education system contributed to wealth and income gaps evident in the labor market? And what does your new system do to address and alleviate this embedded inequality? Work from labor economists at MIT and other places has shown that 
there is an increasing gap between college-educated workers and those who have high school or less or even partial college education. So that's sort of one thing. And of course, we have in college education this issue of increasing student debt, $1.6 trillion and counting. So that's one huge thing. And the way MIT and others we have taken it on is through open education resources. So MIT gave its curriculum, uh, put it up on a site called OpenCourseWare as much as possible. About 20 years ago, we just celebrated its 20th anniversary. Hundreds of millions of people have come and downloaded content. And then we launched MITx and then edX. I serve on the board of edX. And the idea here is to make education much more freely available to the world. But that's one huge sort of issue, which is the difference between college education and not having a college education. And, you know, more than 50% of our Higher ed is done in, co- in community colleges, and community colleges are underfunded and struggling and low complete completion rates. So it's, it's a massive problem that needs to be taken on in its own right. Now, there's a second thing which is happening, which I talked about earlier, which is the changing nature of jobs. You know, more people sort of working for themselves, gig economy. And what happens in a gig economy is that you're only as good as your last reference from your last gig. And let's say you're working in marketing. Well, marketing just went digital marketing and then new digital marketing tools and you've got to upgrade yourself. And, you know, humanity has just spent a year uh, going all digital, right? Here we are doing this digitally, right? So there's this massive need for people to continually upgrade their skills. And we really don't have a system for that yet. And that's what we talk about. You know, there is no, if you ask, if you shake someone and say, hey, listen, what's, you know, in the middle of the night and say, what's a, what's higher ed? They'll know. But if you say, what's, you know, what's workforce education? They have no idea, really, because it's uh, a scattershot and it's sort of disorganized and, you know, and the credentialing isn't clear. But that's a whole movement that's going to start occurring. And that'll be impacted by technology, online stuff, virtual reality, gaming, all that stuff goes into it and the science of learning. So that whole thing has to sort of play out. And that's the second piece. And if you don't have both, we will continue to have a divergence in this economy. Let me just say a word on, in addition to what Sanjay said, you know, to emphasize that college education really has become that critical dividing line in our society. That's, that's the make or break movement. Kids are making very critical decisions about their futures when they're 17, 18 years old without fully understanding the ramifications. But if they get on a college track, they're on a track towards that upper middle class and that expanded economic well-being the college education is becoming an increasing dividing line, but the college credential itself is kind of a default credential because as Sanjay pointed out, we don't really have a credentialing system that tells us about the skills we have. Employers don't know what qualifications applicants have. Workers don't know what skills employers want. Educators don't know what skills to educate for. So the college degree is the kind of default line and it's, it's kind of a default credential. What we need is, as Sanjay suggested, is a new system that gets us to a range of credentials that fit these new skills, right? We need short courses, right? Because lots of people already in the workforce are not gonna be able to take two years off to get a community college degree, for example. They're gonna need short modules and be able to stack those credentials. And in turn, that can lead to a degree. Now, the degree is not going to disappear. That's going to be a very critical credential in our society for a long time to come. But can we get credential pieces that in turn are recognized by employers? They'll help get us these pieces in our backgrounds, in our resumes, in our, in our online credentials that show that we've got the skill sets 
to qualify for these new jobs? And can we do them in short pieces that make them much more manageable for students to be able to acquire and get and keep? You know, I'm working with a couple of university leadership programs and we're, we're looking at exactly that, either for younger people who are stepping into leadership, who got a college degree five years or 10 years ago, and then we've got the people who are further along in their careers and they need to update how they lead. So they may have been in leadership roles for 10 or 20 years and what they're doing needs to continue to stay current. So I know we're looking at things like just the stackable certifications, even for folks who've got the degrees, how do they show that they are differentiated from people who are continuing to learn, coming to edX and taking the MOOC classes and, and other things? You've got those, I realize it's a continuum, it's not a black and white, but then we've got some folks who got the degree 20 or 30 or 40 years ago and they're not staying current. And so creating a way to quickly identify who's been updating and who hasn't, the certification seems important there as well. Absolutely. We have a monolithic system. We need a tapas bar. And we're going to need to, you know, engage in kind of a new organizational model. So universities and colleges are focused on a cohort of 18 to 24 year olds that's gonna to have to go. And look, the demographics in the society are changing too. So that's not a demographic you wanna necessarily be in if you're a college or university. We're gonna, a lot of schools, if they just stay in that demographic are gonna close. They're gonna to need to move towards lifetime learning, which is frankly, exactly what our society needs, right? Sanjay uses this metaphor, but in other words, just because you spend a few days at a gym doesn't mean you're fit for life right? Just because you've got a four-year degree and you finish it doesn't mean you've got an education that's going to last you for life. You're going to have to keep getting updated. So colleges and universities are going to have to move towards a system of lifelong learning. Community colleges are by and large already there. Their average age is 29. So they're reaching an older, an older cohort already. But the other parts of the system are going to need to change to reflect this. The pandemic has forced many schools to educate remotely with the arguments between both for and against the efficacy in constant debate throughout the year. So your book emphasizes that expanding online education is crucial to successful reskilling of the workforce. Can you expand on the value that online education brings to the system overall? Look, first of all, I think people need to understand that what we saw during the pandemic, which was what I call Zoom University, is not proper online education. That is remote education. That is socially distanced education. In many respects, it's the worst of both worlds. It neither has the human charm of being together, nor does it have the true benefits of true online education. Real online education is videos that are pre-recorded, very carefully crafted, 10-minute chunks, applying the science of learning. And if you go to YouTube and you want to learn about machine learning or about how to operate a CNC milling machine, I mean, the videos are beautifully crafted. You can pause them. You can rewind them. That's not what happened during the pandemic. What happened during the pandemic is teachers heroically, you know, sort of surviving and students trying to survive. But the problem is we have one word for it and they call it online. It's not. That's remote education. Proper online education because you can really tailor it to the human, to human cognition. You can make it cognitively friendly. You can have little short videos and you can have 
you know, uh, question and answers, which are automatically graded, you know, right after. You can have proctored exams, you can have tutoring, you can have a forum where people can talk to each other, is extremely effective. And in fact, what is even more effective than that, which is what I hope will happen when we all return from the pandemic someday, soon, hopefully, is blended learning. And the idea is that you learn the stuff that you can do online, online, but when you're in the classroom, you focus on the things that one can only do in the classroom. So when nature grants back to us the privilege of being together, let's make it count. Coaching, curiosity, hands-on stuff. All the stuff you couldn't do online is what the classroom should be saved for. So long story short, this modality of using proper online combined with classrooms used efficaciously and thoughtfully can really up the game in making education scalable, accessible, convenient, and just in time. So you start a new job, you learn, need to learn a new skill, you're ending a gig and you're going to start a new gig and you need a new skill, boom, you can get it. So this is the 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 extraordinary opportunity in front of us, but we need to get our act together to make it work. We need to figure out what the content is. We need to address all the things that Bill addressed. You know, what are the credentials? How do you display the credentials? Can you prove a credential? One of the things we're doing at MIT along with 12 other universities is a blockchain-based credential proving system so that you get your credential, you put it on your LinkedIn page. If someone, if an employer clicks on it, it says, yes, Maureen did in fact take this course on, you know, digital marketing, right? So this is what we need to build, and this has to be done at a scale that this country and the world hasn't uh, done since World War II. In World War II, you know, after World War II, we had 16 million people return from, from the war, and we figured out how to educate them. It was a GI Bill, right? Give them quality jobs. We need to do this on the same scale because we have 10 million people out of work and unknown number of people in the, you know, not participating in the labor market. We need a GI Bill for the 21st century. And online is an extraordinary weapon in enabling that. Good point, Sanjay. And I want to jump in on that. I started teaching online through a university and actually an MBA program. I taught in their first cohort, and that was 25 years ago. And it was designed with professional course developers. And it, it a little less robust back then than, than things are now. But it, it was, even early on, kind of the flipped classroom you study and do the things you can do outside of the classroom independently. And we were able to serve deployed military people and folks who wouldn't have had access to education in another way. So now one of the questions is how do you make that financially accessible? Because how it was built back then was not less expensive. It was just more available online. Well, you know, at MIT, we created something called the MicroMasters. What we did was we took the first half of a master's. We turned all the course into massive open online courses, MOOCs. We did something called an inverted admissions process. So any student anywhere can take these courses without admissions. And if they finish, and these are very difficult MIT-level courses with an exam, et cetera, et cetera, proctored. If you finish, you get a new certificate called a MicroMasters, which is, you know, a thousand bucks compared to, you know, tuition at a, at a college like MIT, at a school like MIT. And then if you finish and you do really well, you can apply to MIT, get admitted. And if you get it admitted, you can finish in your regular master's in half the time. So there are all sorts of models for fundamentally changing the economics of online education. It cannot be, you know, a school like MIT doing it on its own. Society needs to take this on like the GI Bill. We deserve 
I think our people, our uh, the citizens, and our uh, our society deserves some way in this information economy to be able to transition from one information space to another or one skill to another. This is sort of the call of the times, in my view. To me, it is both a societal problem. How do we navigate people who are unemployed or underemployed and running businesses? How do we as business owners and business leaders recruit the right talent to get the work done? As a community, how do we help people flourish? And as businesses, how do we thrive and also have employed people who can buy our products and use our services? A great advantage of online is that it can scale very fast, right? To scale face-to-face education, you have to start building classrooms and hiring teachers for every 25 students, right? Online, it costs more, obviously, to do the upfront course, the upfront online course, and to build in the kind of features that Sanjay was talking about, to really reflect the the best in learning science, Mm -hmm. right? To build in the assessments. That takes more time and energy upfront. Once you've obviously built it, then it can scale to great levels. So online will be a great tool in helping us reach the numbers we've got to reach. Blended learning is always going to be best, as Sanjay pointed out. But nonetheless, that scaling factor of being able to move a lot of the just the plain content online and then save the teachers for that face-to-face interaction to learn those kind of advocacy skills and presentation skills for mentoring, for the hands-on part of workforce education. So that the classroom becomes more of a workshop, more of a studio, right? This presents a tremendous opportunity in education that, that we can realize we're just gonna to have to get organized. And as Sanjay describes, a new GI Bill is probably what we need. And a changed mindset. Because who wouldn't wanna go listen to MIT professors and Nobel laureates and people like that rather than, and I'll say myself, I would rather listen to the best people in the field if I could. And yet we haven't seemed to get the mindset right that says that's in fact possible and beneficial. Correct and efficient and easy to deliver and cognitively better. And it enables blended learning, right? Which is Mm -hmm. now you learn something, go do something with it as opposed to sitting passively in a lecture. Um, You know, if you think about Michelangelo, right? He probably never attended a lecture. He spent all his time in workshops, you know, being coached. Mm -hmm. He's done that pretty well, right? (laughs) Yeah, and all of us do, and we know this about adult learning. We do better when we practice things. I use the example like you do of the gym. My partner, Mike, last year wanted to learn karate. Had always wanted to do it since he was a kid. Finally started taking karate classes. He is much better at karate because he goes to classes, not because he goes and watches Chuck Norris in a movie theater. This is true for all of us. Today, we are talking about workforce education with Phil Bonvillian and Sanjay Sarma. We were talking about the idea of stackable credentials. Can you explain what that means? And I'm curious when you talk about programs like the MIT program specifically, can people engage in the MOOCs, get credit? I think you said yes. How does that work? Because it does seem like it's a game changer for people, one, to have their credentials, and two, that they can use those credentials potentially as transfer credits into existing programs if they want to go back and get the full degrees. 
Yeah, Maureen, I think that, thank you. That's a good question. Our education system, as I said earlier, is like a, it's a monolith. It's like a, you know, prefix meal. You know, you've got to eat all of it or none, right? How ironic is it that if you, let's say you need 100 credits to graduate, you get 99 credits, well, you're a failure. 100, mm -hmm. oh my God, you're a celebrated graduate, right? It's a very monolithic system. We need a much more granular system. And so what we've done over the years at MIT is first with MOOCs and then with the MicroMasters and other things in the offing, we have developed uh, stackable credentials. And the idea of a MicroMasters is a MicroMasters is effectively half a master's. Just to be clear, we actually don't give credit for that. But if you get into MIT, we use that to accelerate your degree. So we sort of, it's an option of credit. It's not direct credit. MIT doesn't open transcripts. And it turned out to be pretty good because our micro, we have more than, I think we have a million students enrolled in our various MicroMasters programs. And they have the choice of 150 different university pathways. So they can get credit in 150 other universities. And after we created the MicroMasters, we now have more than 50 MicroMasters around the world now from 25 universities, all in the last five years. So obviously there's a hunger for it. There's an interest in it and MicroMasters are taking off and there you have a stackable credential. And soon there'll be other stackable credentials. The MOOC itself is, you know, one fourth of a MicroMasters. So once you break things down, what happens is that it makes it possible to uh, sort of break down, as I said, the monolith. Now students don't have to go for four years to a college, right? Maybe they finish community college and they want to get one credential, not four that it needs to get a two-year, a four-year degree, but or two more years of the difference between a an associate's degree and a full bachelor's, right? They can get one credential. And then when they need more information, they get one more, right? So this idea of breaking down the monolith is something that we have to take on. But for the, all that, you need uh, standards. You need things like, well, what is this credential? As Bill said earlier, is it equivalent to that one? How do you prove it? And that's why we worked on the blockchain, you know, the digital credentials so that you can prove that you actually achieved it. So all this needs to be done and it has to be done again at a societal level. You know, MIT has taken a lead in all this, but along with Harvard and some of our other friends and colleagues, but society needs to take this on because we are today facing a real challenge with employment. Maureen, it's at the, at the workforce and the kind of technician level, you know, we're going to need these stackable credentials that are industry recognized. So it's a very important, for example, that community colleges bring in employers in the design of these kind of new stackable credential systems so that the employers know what they are, they're getting what they want, right? And that the, the credentials stand for something that's going to transfer into employable skills. Um, so that's, that's an additional step at the technician level that we gotta be very careful to follow. I know in technology, my brother's a technologist and, and those credentials have been around for decades now. The IT With, area. And I love the blockchain idea as well, that there's a way to prove it, not just that it's on my LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, that's something that it's not just needed for this, the purpose we're discussing, but also for refugees and for people who work across countries. And uh, so there's a huge movement along this space. You know, I haven't found too many good applications for blockchain, but this might well be one of them. <laughs> you know, Maureen, the U.S. has a very inefficient labor market information system, right? Good markets are determined by quality information being behind them, right? 
that's what makes an efficient, you know, stock market, for example. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information out there about the individual stocks, right? And people can research and find it, right? We lack a good information system behind our, our workforce markets, right? Employers don't know what credentials mean. You know, educators don't know what to educate for. We, we have, have real trouble with the information system and building a credentialing system with credentials that are recognized by employers is gonna be a very key step in, in getting a much more functioning labor market as opposed to the very decentralized one that we have now. You know, as you say that about a decade ago, I was hired to do a lead a study on attracting and retaining technology talent. So what are we gonna need in the next five years? And then how do you build it? And back then, different than what I hear now, is the universities were managed by accrediting bodies and you got what met the accreditation, not what companies needed employees to do. So there was a disconnect when, when we would go to the companies and say, okay, this is what we need. We'd go to the university and say, can you do this? And if it wasn't aligned with what, what their accrediting body required, they weren't able to deliver that. So there just wasn't a clear mechanism and it sounds like we're really moving to resolve so that companies can be clearer about what they require to get the work done, which is changing. And universities now with the stackable credentials, if they're not bound by four-year degree programs, can deliver into the market what's required. We're not saying we're there yet, Maureen. <laughs> but moving there. But people, I think, are starting to see what, see what this model for lifelong learning is going to look like. Uh, what we need to head towards is agile accreditation with a much more granular approach on the one hand. And the agility must come from being sensitive to what industry needs. Having said that, education can't all be about what a company wants because our mission as educators is to prepare a student for life. And a company wants the student to be an employee in their first job, right? So there's a trade-off, but certainly we can meet in the middle. And I do understand the balance between having a liberal arts and economics degree that prepared me to think, not just to get my first job. And I'm very grateful that I have been able to think well beyond, you know, 22. But it's not as if universities have to do one or the other, Maureen. Right. right? In other words... Universities can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? We can offer that lifelong, broad perspective, liberal arts kind of education, but we can also offer opportunities to get much closer to actual workforce opportunities, right? They're not gonna be specific mm -hmm. jobs, but at least they can get us in range of, the, of what the workforce needs might be. And universities can do a better job at doing both these things. Well, and I think if we look at the rate of change in skills, we have to get better. And that's not an indictment of universities. That's just the ecosystem's changing and we all need to adapt. I mean, the stuff I'm doing now didn't exist when I went to school. For many people, they're going to graduate with a degree and, and what they thought they needed when they enrolled and what they need four years later. Again, the ecosystem has changed and there's no fault for somebody did something wrong. It's just how do we help prepare people for that, the, the volume and rate of change and still deliver the foundation upon which to build the skills? Yeah, look, the, the word degree, if I recall, the root is gradient, right? So there's a slope. You're climbing up 
But the assumption is you hit a plateau and you're good. The fact of the matter is today, you don't hit the plateau because there's another gradient coming down, coming down the pike and then another gradient. And so the, our design of our education system, tertiary education, in my view, assumes that you're going to hit a plateau and you're good. We just don't. It's not true anymore. So I, I sort of joke and call it quaternary education. It's continuous, right? We need quaternary education, which is the you know, little boost to help you jump up to the next plateau and the next plateau and the next plateau for the rest of your life. Your book opens with a quick overview of three workforce education studies based in Florida, all of which demonstrate variants of success. So as you're talking about plateaus and such, what needs to happen next for these programs to be applied more widely across the country? So Marina, let's let's talk about what the problem is, you know, in our workforce education system. We've got a disconnect between work and learning, right? You know, when students come out of high school, they are a long ways from being career or job ready. There's a real barrier between the two. Other countries weave those together in, in smarter ways than we're able to, the work and the learning side. We've got disinvestment, frankly, in workforce education by both government and employers in, in past decades. Our labor department programs don't reach higher technical skills or incumbent workers, whereas we've got education department programs that are focused on educating for college, not for workforce needs. And, they, and, and in turn, these programs at the labor department, the education department, they're not linked together. We had a vocational education system, but that was largely dismantled. And now we find we're going to need upskilling capabilities like that. We've got underfunded community colleges that have too low completion rates and too many programs. Universities aren't connected to workforce education. They don't think workforce is their job. They think that's the high school job. But now that the college degree is the critical credential, suddenly the tide has come in and it's lapping at their door. We're missing lifelong learning. We've got underfunded technical education programs at a, at a couple of agencies like National Science Foundation and the Advanced Manufacturing Institutes, but those need to scale. As we talked earlier, we've got a broken labor market information system. And look, all these programs are in legacy sectors, right? They mm -hmm. are hard to change these sectors. You know, the, the three short overviews, that kind of snapshots that we put in at the beginning of the book, one was about short courses and the need for these credentialing-based smaller than degree programs that students can take in a much shorter period of time and build up and stack credentials to get to the qualifications employers need. We need to do that. We're gonna need new education technologies as Sanjay talked about. And VR, virtual reality and augmented reality are gonna be a huge set of new tools that we could actually build into online courses so that you could get not only content but you could actually have hands-on experience built into online experiences using computer gaming-based or simulation-based approaches. And we're gonna need programs that unify these disconnected labor department and education department at the federal level programs. We've seen some states that have unified efforts. For example, the state of Massachusetts, the governor has a skills cabinet and he combines the labor education and economic development agencies, and none of them can stand up a new program unless the others agree, right? So that it's brought a commonality of approach together. You know, there's, there's other new models that we're going to need. Community colleges are not just going to be able to reach community college students. We need, we're going to need them to reach high school students. 
And we're gonna need them to reach incumbent workers at scale, right? To actually go into workplaces and work with employers to, to upgrade the skills of workers that are, that are on the job. We're gonna need, and we can talk about it in a bit, we're gonna need a new system of kind of apprenticeships or what we could call apprenticeships light. light. We're gonna need community colleges to really change their completion rates to get more people through this system. Increasing a, a completion rate of one third to two thirds, that dramatically changes the whole workforce education system in the US if we can get to numbers like that. Those are some of the things we need. Sanjay talked about the new education technologies that we're gonna need. We're gonna need to invest and focus on implementing those in a smart way. So those are some of the kinds of steps I think we need to take. That's really helpful to hear concrete steps that we need to focus on. Because I think, at least I, as I'm listening, I'm thinking, okay, so what do I do? So let's jump into another one then. It's fairly intuitive to visualize how the manufacturing and healthcare sectors can capitalize on upskilling their workers. How can the retail sector rethink its current strategy in largely digital markets? So we're, we've gone from overall system, what needs to change, to specifically addressing problems in one sector? Well, Maureen, the way to think about it, first of all, retail is going through some massive changes and the changes didn't happen overnight. They actually started in the early 2000s because the US is six times overbuilt, has more retail per capita, square footage per capita than the rest of the world. And I think 50% more than Canada, the country that's closest to us. So retail was already in trouble. And then the 2008 crash occurred and then retail sort of slid downhill from there and then meanwhile, online retail, Amazon's been around for, you know, since the mid nineties, right? It's almost 30, 25 years. Online retail has been taking off. Now, as retail got into trouble, there were two directions it could go in. One was, well, to, to reduce human capital or the contribution of human capital to do more menial jobs, you know, restock shelves, move stuff around. But actually some portions of retail have gone the other way, which is uh, upskilling retail, up, upskilling employees. So for example, if you go to an Apple store, it's quite clear that the employees there are experts and passionate about their products. If you go to Sephora, uh, I'm told, visited once just to see, the service is really great, you know, and there's a lot of advising and so on. Some retailers are even considering the store to be more like a showroom, right? Where you go look at the product, but actually it gets delivered to you online. So you don't actually carry inventory in the store, which has all sorts of implications on savings, et cetera. If you do that, the store advisors at a Brooks Brothers or at one of these stores or at a Nordstrom, you know, these are high end. But nonetheless, if this is a direction that retail goes in, we're talking about upskilling. We're talking about reskilling. We're talking about informing people about products. If retail goes the other way, it'll still go high tech. So right now today, What's happening is that retail is trying to become more efficient as opposed to more sort of advisor-like. Then you're going to get more RFID technology. It's a technology that comes out of my lab, actually, RFID, or you know, you'll have more Bluetooth beacons. That too requires digital skills. And if it goes online or what is called omni-channel, which is you know, order at home, pick up in store, order at the store, pick up, deliver at home, in all these combinations, warehousing becomes important. And warehouse operations require a familiarity with uh, warehouse systems, uh, autonomous forklifts, autonomous robots, which is actually happening a lot there. So that too requires upskilling. So long story short, this retail industry is actually 
surprising it's going to change by the way if store jobs go down and warehouse jobs go up there's a gender mix because store jobs tend to be more female and warehouse jobs tend to be more male so that's an implication as well so if you think of retail as a sector retail is a first job it's a job that sustains people between jobs it is going through change and we have to prepare people to be employable and successful in retail and even an industry as old as retail is going to see change and covid just accelerated because we've all survived on online retail for the last year and so we've trained in this new world and online is going to be a new normal i mean we will return to old retail but it'll be different so what i hear then is there's a bifurcation you're going to have some retail that's much more advisor based and some that is more technology based but in either case we're going to need additional skilling that's right it's almost universal every industry is going to go through a transformation and retail which one would think my god how does it transform well here it is it's going to go through a transformation and if the employees can't be transformed with the industry we'll leave them hanging you've also highlighted apprenticeships specifically in germany switzerland and austria how can the us strike out on a path or continue on a path in some industries to create similar programs in order to build an infrastructure of skilled talent that strengthen the manufacturing industry and in other industries. So Maureen, I can I'll jump in on that one although I know Sanjay's got some comments too. As I said before, we've got this dividing line between work over here and learning over here, right? And the transition in our economy and in our society it's just, it just a big barrier. There's no transition system. There's, it's by no means seamless. And that's a big problem for us. You know, as we discuss in the book, there are a number of countries that have built apprenticeship programs so that that transition, that work-learn barrier is much lower. The transition between work and school is, is much easier to get across. And we're going to need to do more of that here. We're just leaving too many people behind because of this barrier that we've created. I've seen, and we write about in the book, apprenticeship programs in South Carolina. There's actually a statewide apprenticeship program at the community college level that's throughout the entire state. And interestingly, in the Charleston area of the state, a very dynamic community college, Trident Tech, along with the area chamber of commerce, and they were pushed towards a youth apprenticeship program by six small manufacturing companies. They were having trouble finding skill employees, and they were kind of getting outcompeted in finding workers by brand name companies in that area, like Mercedes and, and Boeing. Uh, and they were having trouble finding good people, and they were prepared to create a program working with the community college and the chamber to take students at the junior year of high school and move them towards job opportunities. So here's what a day looks like for a student who's in one of these apprenticeship programs, and these are registered apprenticeship programs with the Department of Labor. The student goes to their high school in the morning, and guess what? The employees want them to take more science and engineering. And then around midday, they go to the community college, right? Trident Tech, a technical college, and they take skills in the technical skills that they're gonna need in their manufacturing job. And then in the later part of the afternoon, they go to the job, right? And they're earning very good money and they can work on Saturdays if they want to and over vacations if they want to as well. This means that 
these students are in a much more mature environment, right? They're out of high school and we all know how disruptive that can be. They're in a community college setting with college students who are average age 29, or they're in a workplace, average age of the workers is gonna be 35 to 45. So they're in a much more mature environment. They're earning terrific money for somebody in high school, right? And there's a clear pathway directly to a job and the employers often want them they finish one year of community college by the time they graduate from high school, the employers often will pay for them to get that second year in that community college degree. We're going to need more of these kinds of opportunities for our students. And that sounds brilliant on so many levels that the students get the skills that the employers need. So students have, have a pathway to work. Their investment in education is directly aligned with what they need. Now, this doesn't address the liberal arts part, but not everyone is going to become a college grad. They're going to get that because they've got to get their high school degree and they've got to get their community college degrees. I want to reiterate a couple of things that you mentioned that are really solutions and jump in and tell me what I've missed. So you talked about micro-credentialing and stackable credentials, VR tools to give hands-on experience and practice, labor department connecting to education, and, and you gave a brilliant example with the apprenticeship program, the interconnection of programs between sectors. So university, in this case, high school, department of labor and companies, community colleges, upping the completion rate and then increased use of technology. What have I missed? And we've got about 30 seconds left. Maureen, you've got the menu. Okay. So for our listeners, there's definitely a call to action that one, it's required that the book Workforce Education lays out the case for why it's needed and a significant part of the path forward, understanding that this is another example of we're building it as, as we go. Where would listeners find you? The best way to find me, Maureen, is uh, just on the MIT website, Sanjay Sarma. I'm not a social media maven by any means. S-A-R-M-A is the spelling. That's correct. And you can do the same for Marie, Marine, and, and you can find my website at, as well under my last name. And that's spelled B-O-N-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. So Bill Bonvillian. Thank you for joining us. We've got a lot of work ahead and it is required. Our businesses need it, our communities need it, and our citizens need meaningful work. So I encourage you to buy the book, look at the techniques, and participate in the solution. Thank you for listening. Like us, share us, and come back again. Thank you. Thank you.